Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the MamaCracks.com. edition of Mama Kratz Blog Talk Radio. This is Joanne Bamberger, one of the Mama Kratz. I also blog as Pundit Mom. And I'm here today with a couple of the other Mama Kratz. I know Julie and Donna are both on the line, and I see somebody else is on the line also, but I'm not sure who it is this afternoon. Hi, Joanne. How are you doing? <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. Excited so, to talk about this. So I, I thought maybe before we started, uh, we're going to be talking today a little bit about Arianna Huffington's book, The Right is Wrong. This is really our first official Mama Kratz book club that we decided to take online today. But um, there are a lot of things that have been going on uh, since we had our last Mama Krat podcast. Uh, a lot of us went to blog her. And I know that many of us were at the panel with uh, the RNC representative Liz Mayer and the Obama representative, Pennsylvania Congresswoman Allison Schwartz. And I thought maybe we could talk for a few minutes about uh, what we thought about that panel. Uh, so why don't I start? I'll ask Julie what she thought about that. I thought, and, and, and I don't mean this to sound as bad as it's going to, I was a little bit disappointed, um, I think basically because I was not sure that either panelist was quite as prepared um, or as expert on the topics as I had hoped, although I do think both of them did provide some good answers and some good information. There were definitely topics, and, and I realized my expectation was probably unreasonable. You can't expect somebody to be a total expert in all areas or across the total campaign. Um, but I, you know, I, I do, I do have to say that I was especially disappointed in Liz Mayer's performance because she started every single answer going so negative about Obama. Um, I realize that it's the SOP to start with the negative about the opponent um, from that camp, but it just seemed like sometimes she spent almost her entire five-minute speaking time um, talking about how the other person wasn't doing it very well. And to my way of thinking, it would have been so much more productive if we could have had more information about each individual candidate and why he would be good for the job. Do you think that that was a function of who they decided to send, given that the McCain campaign did not specifically send someone from the McCain campaign, that they sent someone from the RNC, and that I'm not sure what uh, Congresswoman Schwartz's role is with the Obama campaign, but I also had the sense that she wasn't as well schooled in um, you know really being able to advocate for him as she could have been yeah that that might it might be a function of who they sent um, i i don't I'm not sure how many occasions Congresswoman Shorts has gone out representing the Obama campaign or Senator Obama himself um, I appreciate her taking the time to come, and she was a lovely woman, um, very gracious 
provided some very good information on certain topics that were definitely her areas of expertise. As far as Liz Mayer goes, it might have been, but, you know, it's really that that style of communication is really not restricted to the RNC. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's kind of standard operating procedure across all Republican candidates' campaigns. Um, I'm not sure that anybody else coming in to speak on behalf of McCain would have necessarily spent probably the whole five-minute speaking time denigrating the opponent. The other person might have spent more like one and a half minutes denigrating the opponent and then the remainder of the time talking more about how this candidate, Senator McCain, would do a good job on this topic. But it could have been who it was who came. I don't know. I, I thought that Liz was – she struck me as being very much – acting in the typical way of a well-schooled Republican spokesperson. She had talking points. She stuck to the talking points. She didn't vary from the talking points. Yeah, and it was very smooth. And if I was an undecided, I think I might have been more impressed with her performance than Congresswoman Schwartz. Why is that? Just because she just kept hammering in the talking points. She knew what she wanted to say, and she got to the point, and she did it quickly, whereas Schwartz rambled a little bit. And again, I think that was a function of her not being as clued into the campaign. But the Republicans are very good sticking to their points. I, I agree with that, Donna. I, I think you're right. And I've actually noticed that Congresswoman Schwartz is not the only Obama surrogate who has a tendency to ramble. I, I've I've fed in on some of the weekly conference calls and I've listened. Um, Congress uh, Congressman Becerra from California on the Latino issue this last week was by and far the most to the point and brief <laughs> that I've heard on any of the calls that I've sat in on. So, can I jump in with an opinion too? Sure. Always. Hi, Taylor. <laughs> Hi, Taylor's on the line. Hey, Taylor. Hi. I wasn't sure if, if you guys had punched me in yet. So. Yeah, yeah you've, um, been, you've been in since the beginning, so just Okay. Ahead. Well, um, I thought my impression of the, of the session that we attended with, with Mayor and Congresswoman Schwartz was that neither one of them had really been prepared by the, you know, the campaigns um, to expect the type of very specific hard-hitting policy questions that they got in the session. And I wonder if maybe there was an assumption on the part of both camp staff that, um, you know, since this is a conference of women bloggers, that we were going to be perhaps asking them about, you know, what what are the wives' favorite shoes? or You know what I mean? Yeah, softball. I think you're right. I think that's why they stuck to talking points or rambled. Right. I think, and I actually, I I really enjoyed speaking with Congresswoman Schwartz, um, and I, I agree entirely that uh, Liz Mayer spent far too much time criticizing her opponent. I actually said uh, to a couple of people I was sitting next to you while we were in there that I really would have preferred they made a rule that that uh, each surrogate was not allowed to mention their opponent in their response to the oh, questions. Oh, that would have been a wonderful rule. Yeah, yeah. could spend too much time criticizing each other and not enough time sort of talking with us about what they thought their particular candidate candidate's strengths were yeah. and why. I mean, the whole I thought the whole theme was supposed to be why is your candidate best for women? 
and women voters. And I don't think they ever really got to that specific place. I mean, they did talk a little bit about, you know, health care and some of the other issues that tend to be some of our bigger concerns, but they really seemed much more concerned with attacking the other person. And I guess I don't know if that's just a function of where we are today in politics or I think it is. And I think that actually the book we'll be discussing later on in the podcast really is very much to that. I think think we are very much um, in a situation right now in this country where people have become so accustomed to that as a style of political discourse, just constant attacks on opponents rather than substantive discussion of issues. But I think, um, you know, people have come to accept that as a, as a normal way of doing things in politics. And I think, you know, it's really detrimental to everyone because many people really do care. I mean, certainly bloggers care. Certainly the people in that room cared. Yeah. Uh, you know, about specific policy plans on very important issues that affect the everyday lives of ordinary people. And I think that's what we need to work together to move our discourse back to. And I do want to say, I thought that Congresswoman Schwartz was much better about sticking to bonus plans than uh, Liz Mayer was. I, I was just a little disappointed that she didn't have more specific information to offer because I think she could have, you know, maybe really hit back since, since uh, you know, McCain's surrogate's plan of action was to pretty much constantly bash Obama. It seems to me that, uh, you know, it would have been maybe a little more effective if she'd been prepared with some statistics and facts to roll out right away. But, you know, I did appreciate that that they recognized the need for someone to block her on both sides. Right. You know, actually, that's an interesting point that you just made. It brings up several things that happened immediately preceding the panel. Um, The first thing that I think is, I think the only reason Congresswoman Schwartz ended up addressing McCain was to clarify um, misinformation that Liz Mayer was perpetuating. Um, I I noticed that Liz Mayer, some of her information that she was supplying about Obama was actually not accurate. And some of it was out of date. And that was eventually why I stood up to her and said, Hey, listen, you know what? That's actually not true. Um, yeah. Before you assert that, yeah. you need to get your facts straight. And, and I, can, I can stand here as somebody who is not an actual representative or affiliate of the Obama campaign and tell you that's erroneous. Here's what's actually true. And, um, and, and what's interesting to me is we submitted a lot of those question, questions in advance. And I don't know what my expectation or thought was. I did think our questions would be asked. This but is Joanne. Were, I really thought they were going to stick to those questions. I thought that I was the whole too. point yeah. of asking for those questions in advance, and yeah. I was really happy that there were so many substantive questions. And, of course, they've got to take questions from the audience as well. But and I it, thought they would definitely try to get those in. And they were publicly posted on the blogger website. For some reason, I thought that the surrogates would, would read them, would read the <laughs> questions in advance. And right. I, I had an awkward moment walking up the stairs with Congresswoman Schwartz on the way to the, you know, panel that she was sitting in on um, about how to do good with new media. Um, and she said to me, do you have any idea what kind of questions are going to be asked? Ooh. It was just an awkward moment for me because she was asking me what questions are people going to ask, and I said to her, oh, well, we pre-submitted all of the questions. Um, They're on the Internet. And she's like, oh, they are? And I said, 
let me see if I can try to remember. They're pretty detailed and pretty in-depth. I said, you know, we're talking, we were asking about uh, health care programs. We were asking about um, issues with, you know, the women's economic plan. And then my mind just kind of stuttered and blanked out on what, you know, I'm thinking to myself, there were about 15 solid in right. It was hard questions. to try to remember all of those questions yeah. to be able to give yeah. them to her sort of, you know, at that. And, and oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt <laughs> No, but it, 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 and it, it turned out moment that I thought, oh my gosh, you're you're going to be sitting down on a panel in less than an hour. And yeah, <laughs> somebody <laughs> dropped the ball in getting her prepared because yeah. those were up there for a week ahead of time. And and well, how does that reflect? And my question is, how does that reflect on us as we're trying to be taken more seriously? as, you know, political bloggers and right. as, quote-unquote, mommy bloggers. And I don't know if you all have had a chance right. to see the article that's coming out in the New York Times tomorrow no. about blog her. It's on the web now. I got someone sent me the link I to it. Did see and that. No. It's sort of about, you know, how it's a much more fluffy look at blog her as opposed to, you know. And, and so the question is, you know, why is it on the style section? That's because, you know, they're not taking us seriously, but then, you know, what's our role in making sure that when we have political representatives coming that they have the information that we want ahead of time and so they know that we're prepared and that we're serious. Right. That's what I was going to say. I was I was thinking, how, how do we know? I mean, A, Blogger asked us to submit, asked all the Blogger readers to submit yeah. questions, but then those questions were not the questions that were asked necessarily in the session. I mean, some, they I did ask Donna's some of the questions that were submitted. Yes, Donna's question did get asked. But, but, um, but, you know, they sort of gave the impression that those questions were going to be the questions asked. And then instead, during the session, they were taking mostly questions from the audience. Um, and then I, I wonder, you know, did Blogger actually submit those questions to the surrogates and let them know that this that these were the issues that we were interested in. Clearly I don't know. That's the million-dollar question. They clearly did not submit the questions in advance, um, or else the campaigns did not get those questions. I don't know where the communication breakdown happened. I mistakenly assumed that the blogger people would get those questions to the campaigns. Yeah. Who then I assumed would get those questions to the people coming to the, you know represent and discuss things on the panel. Well, hopefully, those that could really be erroneous changed assumptions. next time. Yeah. yeah. They should let us run it next time. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Well, actually, actually let, let me move to another topic. I had to leave Blogger uh, and was not able to attend the session that some of you had with some of the other women who were there where you put together uh, the Democratic Platform Building session on health care which has been posted at Mamacrats. And I just wanted to find out, you know, for those of you, from those of you who were there, sort of how that discussion went and sort of what the main points and main concerns were on this healthcare platform that we are now going to collectively submit to the Democratic National Committee. Um, I thought we needed a whole day. <laughs> it sounded it pretty great. ambitious to me. It was yeah. rushed. <laughs> It was. It was a bit rushed. I mean, we had a number of women there. I, I was really happy to have the um, the Silicon Valley group, those that were able to attend there with us, because it was very refreshing and I think very useful to get a perspective. You know, I mean, on Democrats, we have somewhat of a spectrum of political views, but they're all liberal 
versus political views. And there were some women in our session who were coming from a different place in terms of their political uh, beliefs and, and background. And I thought that was useful. You know, there was there were some suggestions in particular from from women who had supported other candidates about, you know, involving the private sector more and looking at successful private sector programs that have already happened that I thought were really excellent suggestions that, you know, c coming from a more conservative or business-oriented point of view than maybe most of the Momocrats have. And so I appreciated that input. And it's a great example of how people can come together and work together and that, you know, discussion is actually enriched when people with different um, with different views and backgrounds are working together on the same problem. And that's, you know, I wish I wish we could take that sort of sense of cooperation. And respect. Um, <laughs> right, and mutual respect and, and, yeah. and inject that into the, <laughs> the current political climate because it was really great. And that was something that I felt, in general, at Blogger, when I encountered other women who write about politics, I really felt like everyone had a cooperative, supportive spirit. And, and it surprised me, but I was very pleasantly surprised to feel that I could talk to. I mean, I attended most of the political sessions, and there were a lot of conservative bloggers in the political sessions. And I just felt like we were still all, you know, but the most important thing to us was the discussion. That's and so refreshing, too, to be able to have and acknowledge that mutual respect. And I think it was, you know, sort of it, it's sad that we're commenting on it and saying how uncommon it is. And I think that was reflected in one of the panels when one of the speakers showed a clip from when she had been on TV and how the men respected each other's uh, time and, and speaking points. But then when women started talking about the politics on their show, that they would try to cut them off. And I think that's mm -hmm. what we sort of end up expecting as women who try to talk about these issues. Yeah. And and we you know, it's it's just so refreshing and unfortunately surprising when we find other people who will respect our views, even when they are at the other end of the political spectrum. Well I'll say that's a really interesting point. I I felt the same way. I was actually kind of a little bit surprised, for example, at the lunch discussion with Cynthia Samuels when we were doing the preparation for the Democratic Convention in Denver and getting all the information and everything. I really appreciated how helpful and insightful and how much information she shared. And more than that, I appreciated how everybody around that table was just like, we're all in it together, ladies. Let's back each other up. Let's work cooperatively. And then Cynthia Samuels was so specific in saying, you guys need to work together. Yeah. I was so pumped up from that. I came home from BlogHer thinking, this is fantastic. And uh, for people listening, I'm in Texas. Texas has an incredibly organized system of political bloggers. And they even have a political action committee. Um, but they also have an alliance called the Texas Progressive Alliance, and it's a group of 40 of the top political blogs in Texas. And I, I represent the Momocrats for this group because you have to be Texas-based to be a member. And it's been such a wonderful resource and such a good thing to use. I came back from BlogHer, and I sent out a message to the group saying, who's going to Denver? Let's get together. Let's talk. I got a lot of really great information um, I want to see what you guys picked up from Netroots, um, see if we can put stuff together, see if we can work cooperatively in Denver. And I sent that message out, and do you know what happened? 
Nothing. <laughs> Literally sent this message out to probably a list of 50 or more people, and I sent that message out and crickets chirped. <laughs> and it's yeah. not exclusively men on the list, and a woman actually founded the group. So it's not like, but it, I do think men predominate. I do think there are more men there. And intriguingly, um, one of the men is doing a research paper, and he asked us to give information about kind of our status because the perception is that most political bloggers are inexperienced, uninformed, 20-somethings, you know, like early 20-somethings. And he said, you know, I think I'm probably fairly representative. I'm still a student. I'm a graduate student, but I'm 24. And, and I think that, you know, I think I'm fairly representative. Actually, he was at least a decade younger than the average age. <clears throat> and wow. And the bios from the people, most people were in their late 30s to mid-40s, and there were some people even beyond that. Uh, and, and more than that, these were people who had all worked on political campaigns. Many of them had had paid positions. Most of them had advanced degrees in some sort of politics or writing. It was actually really intriguing to see um, that political bloggers, men and women alike, are actually not just – and I think this is part of the problem with getting that respect that we've just been talking about. We're not just fighting a gender stereotype. We're fighting a citizen journalist stereotype, too. Yes, yes And that is that we are young, inexperienced, uninformed. So I think then you add the mother to that, and then they think we're total uh, airheads. That's right. Right. That's when they put you in the life and style section when you went to a bloggers conference instead of the technology section. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oh, the the thing that I thought was the best about that, this is an aside, is that the New York Times article we're referencing is titled something like uh, "Blogging's Glass Ceiling," and it's actually right. all about how how women bloggers don't get the same respect as men bloggers do, especially in the realm of politics, and, and yet they put in the list and, and then they put it in the style section, which I yeah, mean, they, they tend to do that. I don't know why the New York Times continues to do that because there, I remember there was a whole discussion about this when. About a year ago or so, there was an article about Moms Rising and about the video that they had put out and the and the you know parties, for lack of a better term, that mm-hmm. women were having to show you know the the Moms Rising movie and you know women who are having issues with healthcare and education and things like that, and that was also in the style section as opposed to in in the main the A section or the political section. Well, the style section used to be called the ladies the women's section. Right. Yes, it did. You know, so the the editors are still thinking it that way. Yes, and the Washington Post is, you know, equally, you know, guilty. You know, those are the two papers I read the most, so I don't know about, you know, any of the other major newspapers. And none of that is really going to change until there stops being a majority of men, you know, owning the papers and editing the papers and assigning the stories. Well, I can say that Houston Chronicle picks anything I write up. it, it's treated in the exact same manner as man, woman, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> the editor, whenever he picks anything of mine up and runs it on the Houston Chronicle, it goes on the news opinion page. Well, that's excellent. That's, that's, that's uh, great. We, we need to get him or her to talk to some more editors. Yeah. It, it's yeah. him, and he's, you've probably seen me chatting with him on Twitter. It's D. Silverman. I should probably, I should, there we go. I should probably not, like, broadcast his name. Sorry. <laughs> I think he's a very intelligent and innovative person, and I think he comes up with a lot of really brilliant ideas. I think he has 
added a lot of value to the Houston Chronicles online, you know, effort. So, but yeah, this style page that just makes me shudder. Yeah, Los Angeles Times that they're a little bit different. So I guess this sort of maybe gives us a, a little bit of a segue into the book review. Is I wonder what Ariana Huffington's take on all of this would be about women bloggers and women political bloggers getting relegated to the style section. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure she'd have some strong words to say about it. Yeah, I'm sure she would. But you know, I think I think Ariana Huffington's message in the book is kind of a message that applies not only to her message about, you know, stopping the right-wing spin machine from from hijacking the discourse, but also it applies in a way to what we're talking about about, you know, equality for women in the media and um I think, you know, she says ordinary people need to stand up if the, if the media won't check what the government is saying anymore and if they're buying this spin whole, you know, ordinary people who, who've been paying attention and do know the truth need to stand up and talk about it and write about it. And I think the same is true of women bloggers. You know, I think that one of our greatest strengths is that we are willing to work together and work as a community. And that was so reinforced when I was at Blogger. My my notion of that was was really bolstered by, you know, the attitude I saw of everyone I spoke with practically, you know, just just wanting to help other bloggers get their voices heard and and get their pieces, you know, more recognized by the mainstream media and, and widen their audiences. And I think, um, you know, as, if we as bloggers keep providing information and a message that readers are searching for that they cannot find elsewhere, I think that, you know, the Internet will be a way that women can achieve more equality over time because, you know, sites like ours where we really draw an audience, a very underserved audience of of women and mothers who feel like the issues that they care about most are often being ignored in the political debate. You know, there are a lot of moms out there who don't have time to follow politics enough to, you know, to keep track, to do their own research and keep track of candidates' positions and all that. And and when we help other mothers and other women and men too, of course, we have men who read the site, including my husband. <laughs> um, you know, when we when we provide that service, I think we're sort we're using social media to go around the main conglomerates that aren't letting us speak. Is, is right. Jayla cutting out for anyone else? Yeah, yeah. the audio is cutting out. Is everybody, can everyone yeah. on the call hear me or are we back yeah, to it? I, know I, I, I can hear you. It's only Jayla who's cutting out for me. Okay. I hear. I'm sorry. Jayla, maybe if you uh, hang up and call back in. That's I will give that a try. Okay. And I will make sure I put you right back on. Okay. Uh, but the point that um, that we were talking about is, you know, not having enough voices of women politically and, you know, sort of how we address that. One thing that I thought was in particularly interesting was I, I talked to uh, somebody from the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and they wanted to talk particularly about women who blog about politics. And this is somebody who is very tuned into the whole mother uh, track uh, about news 
And is she, it a man or a woman? It was a woman. It was Lisa Belkin. I was talking okay. to Lisa Belkin, and she said that uh, she was hardly aware of any women online uh, discussing politics. And of course, she knew about you know pundit mom and mamacrats and the mamacrats individually. But she sort of saw that as a very small community, and we were talking about it sort of in the context of where are the women on the op-ed pages also. And she right. was asking asking me, and we had a discussion about sort of, you know, where are those voices and, and how do we try to get those voices out there more, which obviously we're trying to do at Mamacrats. But, uh, but it's an interesting question, and, and I think some of the, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, sort of how we go about changing that. I think women need to quit apologizing. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote recently on my personal blog, Using My Words, I wrote recently um, that David Carr of the New York Times had written what I felt was an indictment of women's role on the web and that, in his opinion, we had squandered our opportunity and that we had initiated a, quote-unquote, shallow revolution. And this was based off of some rankings and scorings of the most trafficked websites um, geared <laughs> towards women, and they tended to be, quote-unquote, frivolous sites. But a lot of the, quote-unquote, frivolous sites uh, had more going on. He did, in fact, talk to Lisa Stone of Blogger, and Lisa Stone does not head up a, quote-unquote, frivolous part no. of that organization. No. And yeah. I would say that while there is celebrity gossip and things like that, and, the, and in my post, um, on on my personal blog, I I talked about that. That's kind of a common meeting point. That's a little bit of a greeting thing. It's just that you have five minutes in your day. What are you going to do with those five minutes? You're just going to scan something that you don't really have to pay attention to. I think it's just I think it's just a short brief thing. I don't really think it's the thing that women care about that much. It's not the thing that women I know care about that much. I talk to women in real life, on the web. They're interested in other things. But when it comes to politics, they tend to start out saying, well, I'm not really that informed. I'm sorry. There's a lot yeah. of contrition up front. And, and, and I think that's really that sad. Do. I think that's really sad because I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true And either. I'm not sure why women think that they are not as informed as because men tell us that. Well, it's yeah, because of the pieces like that where we get criticized and slammed, you know, that people, that women are afraid to look stupid. So they don't say anything. It's the forced approach to politics. Mm -hmm. I, I get told I'm not really a fan of hockey because I can't name for you every single player on every single team and the position that they play and what the score was between the Caps and the Bruins in 1998's game in Boston. And all of a sudden, just because I can't share those details, I'm not a big fan. And that's the way a lot of men talk to me about sports. That's the way right. a lot of men talk to people, men and women mm -hmm. alike, about politics. Yeah. We don't store stats in our head necessarily. But and that doesn't mean that there's an ignorance. And getting back well, to the book a little bit, I think that's what Arianna Huffington sort of provides a little bit of for I'm, for women, I'm hoping, so that people can say, you know, look, here is, here is a strong, powerful, opinionated woman, and she's been able to build something and have serious political discussion. Um, yeah. And yeah. how do we sort of take a lead 
from her. And one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit after having read the book was the theme, sort of the overarching theme, aside from just right is wrong, but it kept coming up in the book of her critique of the media for being basically lazy, for not doing their job, and for allowing so much of the right-wingers to sort of co-opt the coverage. Yeah. And, and sort of what are your opinions on, you know, that theme in her book and whether that's true or not? I think it's, I think it's true to a point that some, some of the mainstream media definitely have become lazy. She also pointed out that they've become a little too cozy with their own subjects. Yeah. And they've become fearful of being denied access. And I think that the last point might be the most salient one because there are, you know, it put me in mind of what Katie Couric said recently on the Today Show when she when she said that when she was visiting the, the Today Show along with other nightly news anchors and she said that while she had been a part of NBC, she had felt pressure. She admitted to feeling pressure from the Bush administration and from her you know, her own bosses at the corporation. And she was so attacked by saying that. Yeah. Right, right. But she admitted to that. She admitted to feeling pressure to sort of parrot administration lines on various subjects and not question some of the things coming out of the administration. And when you have one of the most powerful voices in mainstream media admitting that she was essentially cowed, that she felt that her, you know, that she had to comply with this, I think that that is, that is huge to think about the fact, you know, I, I think maybe it's a lack of courage, really, that's afflicting them more than laziness. Although laziness well, is economic. Part of it. It's also huge that the men were not, they did basically didn't agree, and she was attacked in the media for saying that, and other, you know, that her two people she was on the show with, the other two male, you know, nightly news co-anchors, essentially said, oh, no, 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 we, that's not a problem for yeah. us. And, you know, well, does it I, take, is it essentially going to take a woman to say the emperor isn't wearing any clothes? Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I think a big problem. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, well, no, I'm just building on what you've said about, you know, laziness and getting too cozy and being afraid. It's an economic situation. The mainstream media in the last 20 years has consolidated. There are fewer voices. They've got corporate masters. Um, you know, budgets are shrinking. You don't have as much staff to cover things in depth anymore. I mean, I bet you they're just running around hurrying to meet all their deadlines, and the research isn't getting done. The follow-up questions aren't being asked. I'm glad I think you that's true. Yeah, I, I agree, too. I think that's true, and I'm glad you mentioned it because it was something that I was meaning to mention as well, that I think, I think that economics are a big part of it. I mean, I know my own newspaper in my hometown is struggling quite seriously now and recently had to lay off like 60 staff members and they're asking the reporters to do more work than ever before and do more of their own research. And they're competing quite frankly with people like us who, you know, bloggers can be a little faster in their coverage on certain issues because we don't have corporate overlords. We don't have somebody wanting to check and double-check and approve and send it back to this department and that department and cross this line out. You know, we don't have that going on. And so we can be a bit more nimble in our coverage, and they have to compete with that. And I think I think it's become a situation where they're just competing for eyeballs, and they don't really care about quality coverage anymore. They care about yeah. sensationalism. And you know what? I That's think actually right. that, that point you just made pulls in with another point that occurred to me when Joanne asked the really interesting question, what can we take 
from Arianna Huffington's example of building a successful political, you know, information machine. And mm-hmm. I think I think that part of the thing is you do get a little close to your subject. And this was a question I had to ask myself when the local Democratic Party pulled about six bloggers together and said, we'd like you guys to provide content for our website for this election cycle. And I thought to myself, and and, and then I was like, okay, and what are the boundaries within we have to, you know, what do we have to consider before we write and publish onto your site? Well, they had quite a laundry list of things you couldn't talk about, things you couldn't say, things that they mm-hmm. definitely wanted you to say. And I sat I listened to that, and I'm like, well, way too restrictive. That just that just cuts back on the freedom and accuracy of information in my mind. I think there definitely is a real push-pull in terms of coverage and access. And I have felt some of that, you know, in another situation. And it it's, it is very upsetting to me that there, that the question of access to the newsmakers and the information holders gets compromised because you want the access, but then if you get the access, you have to be careful about what you say. They want you to be their writing instrument. Right. But the other thing, too, is I think what's interesting is Arianna Huffington makes no bones about where she stands on issues. And amazingly, the Huffington Post has become a leader in news dissemination. And what's amazing to me is without using the quote-unquote unbiased, and I put unbiased in quotes because I don't think a lot of times the news media really is that unbiased, but in trying to cover all sides of every issue, I think they run themselves ragged. And bloggers, what we tend to do is focus. I mean, we all admit we're momocrats. We admit that our goal is to get Democrats into office. Um, We began in support of John Edwards. You know, so we don't make any bones about where we stand, and yet I think a lot of what we write is incredibly accurate and, and informative. I've had, yeah. And I've had a lot of people say that to me, both about Pundit Mom and Momocrats. Like, I understand where you're coming from politically and that you have views that are leaning left, but you talk about them in a way that sort of gives the other side an opportunity to really think about it, that it's not the, you know, just spewing you know, the left-wing or right-wing view of a particular thing. And I think that's what is going to ultimately bring more people into the conversation, hopefully. is that But there are no end cultures among us? <laughs> I'm not wearing my little black dress, no. Okay. <laughs> well, I think that's a good point, though, actually. I'm sorry? I, I think that the, the joke about Ann Coulter that, that Donna just made, um, I, that's a good point because there really aren't. We don't really pull answers. We don't work off of maliciousness and insanity. Um, but she's the one who gets the attention, and she's the one who yeah. gets the platform, and, and Michelle Malkin, and people like her. So, but does anyone how, take anything? If we're not going to be, you know, flamethrowers. Then, you know, sort of, how do and yet people appreciate that we come to the, you know, try to present a more liberal view, but in a reasoned, you know, way. You sort of how to. How do we balance that? Yeah. I think I think the key I think the key things are key. One is that we admit to our bias, and everyone has a bias. There is no such thing as objectivity in any media. There's always some sort of bias, you know, because you're you're biased by your own background and your own life experience. It's by themselves, and so I think, you know, I I think more and more people are respecting it when you admit your bias. So I think that's part of it. Part of it is that we admit 
yeah. that we that we're coming from a certain point of view. And then the other thing is that, um, and, and you know, once that's on the table, then people can take that into account when they're reading. You know, you've already told them that you were coming from a certain point of view, and they can take that into account when they're reading what you write. But then I think the other thing is that we at Monocrats specifically, and I think a lot of bloggers do this actually, despite the reputation that political bloggers have of being, you know, just shoot from the hip, no research. I, th- I think that's actually quite wrong. I think the vast majority of political bloggers actually hold themselves very accountable. Because okay. we know that people take seriously, we try to do everything we can to prove that we should be taken seriously. I know when I write a post, I research it for hours sometimes, just for one page post. I'll read all sorts of different sources, and I try to link sources yeah. so that people can go and see, and I can prove right. that I'm coming from you know, a position of authority on this because I've read up on it, and, and this is what other people have said, and I've actually you know, tried to base my opinion in fact. Well, has and anybody – let me try to get back to the book for just a little bit. Oh, yeah. Of, um, <laughs> I know. It's supposed to be a, we could sit here and do this for hours. I know. We would have no problem. Um, but uh, sort of what were the most interesting things that you took from Ariana's book? It's, it's something that I don't think there are going to be a lot of right-wing people reading this book. I mean, this is a book really aimed at, you know, sort of the people who already believe what she believes. But do you think that she made any specific points um, – that are particularly discussion worthy. I know, the- honestly. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Don. Oh, okay, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Wait, who says? Okay, I'll go really quickly. I just wanted to say the most, the thing that stood out to me most about this book, in terms of using it as a tool um, to advance the liberal discourse, which is what she says she wants to do. I mean, in the subtitle, the, the subtitle cringe, hijacked America, shredded the Constitution, and made us all less safe, and what you need to know to end the madness. And I think that last part is key. She provides so much information mm. book, just sheer information. She recorded so many of I was I was really struck by that, too. Yeah, and I think that is what she does. I think it's talking point. She's giving us a you know, born again. Okay, but I'm sorry. Someone else go next. <laughs> okay. Well, for me, I just because of where I live, and these being major issues locally for me, they're not necessarily the things that I'm. I, I, I'm. They're not my personal most important. But her chapter 11, xenophobia 2.0, the immigration fixation. That that was really. Um, that was really a meaningful chapter to me because, you know, I, I mean, the fact that she brought leprosy, Hansen's disease into it was interesting. Um, mm-hmm. That was not a discussion I expected to <laughs> But she also brought in, you know, the barbed wire fences um, issue, and that's something that is, you know, in the Northeast we didn't have fences. You know, neighbors' backyards tended to be open to one another. But down here in Texas, everybody's got a fence. Everything is, you know, very blocked off, closed off. It's a really different kind of culture, the way the um, houses are organized. It doesn't mean that people aren't unfriendly, though. The culture is, by nature itself, more friendly. But the problem is putting up that fence, it's a disaster for Texas. They have seized land from people. They have run the fence through the middle of a university. So they chopped off the end of Texas 
So the maps aren't even accurate anymore because they just had to have this on the other side of the fence now. It's part of Mexico. And there went the university. They lost one of their science buildings. Um, so it, 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 And this is all in the – and never mind, never mind, and, and this is, I think, something that she has throughout the book, never mind how much it costs us. Mm-hmm. Let's just security above all. Let's let's you know. Let's put fences up, and never mind how it harms us in our foreign relations or how it harms us domestically. Let's put that fence up. And then the second thing she brought up was the health care. You know, the the unhealthy the unhealthy approach. The rights. Un, I'm trying to get the yeah. exact the rights unhealthy approach to health care. She threw in so many important figures. Eighty nine point million people uninsured. And obviously, you guys know that the health care issue is a really big one to me. Um, I'm big into the prevention, but on top of that, again, we are not looking at or examining the cost to ourselves of not having insured people who are properly cared for health-wise. And that is, I mean, I can look at anybody and say, you don't want Obama's health care plan? That's fine. Give up your roads, your police, and your fire, because right now that's where we're headed, because the cities are bearing the burden of the health cost for the uninsured. And people look at me like, oh, I never thought of that. I'm like, who pays? Who pays those emergency rooms if not yeah. the federal government or the state? And why, but why, and why are the Democrats not doing a better job of talking about that? Because I don't that's, know. That's how we are going to reach those people and help them to understand why this is so important, that we are all bearing the cost in so many other ways. It's not about, yeah. oh, I might have to pay for somebody else's health insurance policy, but it's all the people who go to the emergency room because they have no health insurance. And or the children who need to be vaccinated exactly. to enter the public schools. Exactly. And yeah. the cities are bearing those health costs. But, you know, she did such a good job of community. I mean, she does it sometimes um, with a lot of passion. Sometimes she does it with a lot of humor, but she does actually contain in the book a lot of good points. And actually... Each chapter has some really good talking points. I wish the Democrats would read this book, and I wish the Republicans would read it, too. I think some people would change their mind on some issues. I think so, and I also thought it was interesting because for review purposes, I have in the past read some Bill O'Reilly books and other you know, right-wing books, and they tend to be just, you know, let me just continue to spew my opinions without <laughs> any you know, supporting documentation. And, and when you read her, the title of her book, you know, the right is wrong and how the lunatic fringe hijacked America, I think some people are going to get the idea that, oh, no, it's just the left-wing version of all that rhetoric when, in fact, it's not. I was so, not surprised, but really impressed that, you know, she had so much. Pages and pages of footnotes. (laughs) Yes, actual footnotes. I'm not sure Bill O'Reilly's books have any footnotes, not that I've read all his books, but uh, it's, really helpful and you're right it would be so great if we could get at least the democratic women in congress to read yeah. hey christmas presents Ooh, what a great idea <laughs> christmas in july <laughs> send it to all the obama female surrogates and say hey have a read please read this while you're on yeah. the airplane going to your next event yeah you might like it well, and it's a really easy read, too. I mean, I found it's, you know, even though it, it has so much factual information packed into it, it's written almost like a series of blog posts. It is. Yeah. And that yeah. well, each chapter yeah. is very self-contained, and you can put it down, which is great for me because, you know, I'm the mother of a four-year-old. So it was great for me to be able to put it down 
when I was interrupted and pick it back up and not feel totally disoriented, you know, I, I think it would be a great beach book, actually. People should put it in their beach bags. <laughs> Except that after each chapter, I was filled with rage because I was remembering a lot of those things that happened, and it was just reminding me. And I think the media has done a good job of distracting us from everything that's gone on the last eight years. Oh, you are oh, good so point. right. Donna, what part enraged you the most, just out of curiosity? Um, I'm remembering the bit about the mining disaster and how they kept interviewing the owner of the mine who had violated, who had all these safety violations, and he's insisting that the thing was an earthquake, and everybody is saying it wasn't caused by an earthquake, and he's, you know, and he's coming off like the big folksy hero type, well, his workers are dying in there because of his shoddy practices. That, uh... That was tragic. That made me want to cry. And she really yeah. did do a good job of bringing up those moments when we've been distracted from really the issues. And and even <laughs> today, I mean, you've got, you know, things going on on TV about, you know, Brittany and all these other people. It's like, you know what? We have more important things to be thinking about. And oh, I was really pleased that she sort of tried, is trying to bring us back to those points. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. What, part, what part was most meaningful to you? Uh, I, I think what I had talked about earlier, sort of her theme that uh, the media is sort of much too cozy with its sources. And, you know, sort of she just kept coming back to that and coming back to that. And the thing that really I was, I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, sort of if we had been in this sort of media world, back when Woodward and Bernstein were covering or trying to cover Watergate, sort of what would have happened? What would have happened if, you know, the Washington Post, which of course they did not do this, but if they had said, no, 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 you know, we you know, have to have access and, you know, we can't do this and we're not going to run the story, you know, sort of what would our country look like today if they had not been allowed to continue their investigations. And then conversely, what would our country and our media coverage look like today if we had even a handful of mainstream journalists who were willing to buck the access question and say, you know what, you know, okay, I know that President Bush isn't going to answer my question on X, Y, or Z, but there are a lot of other people out there that I'm willing to take the time to you know, develop relationships with those people so that they will trust me and know that I will tell the story fairly, which is what happened with Woodward and Bernstein. And right. I think that's the thing that made me the angriest, you know, sort of on, I was just so excited about all the, you know, statistical and factual information she had, but I just kept getting so angry and then it sort of reminded me, you know, why 80 zillion years ago I had initially wanted to be a journalist was <laughs> to be able to do that kind of reporting and, it was just sad to me that... Well, I'm not sure what reporters are taught in school now. Back 100 years ago, when I entered the University of Texas Journalism School, um, you know, I had come from working um, as an editor on my high school newspaper, and I was all full of the glory of, you know, the example of Woodward and Bernstein. And I have to say I was really disappointed in the school. You know, I didn't, I I ended up switching out of the school and I switched to a different major, but I I didn't feel like there was enough emphasis on the thinking part, the critical thinking part. You're reporting, but it is so important not just to take the information and put, take exactly what someone said to you and put it right back on the page. 
there needs to be critical thought. But I think that newspapers have gotten to where there's just not enough of that critical thinking because I think they feel like it's a slippery slope to an opinion from critical right. thinking. And I think that's, and that's something that blogging actually offers. We do put critical thinking and opinion in there. I think that's what she, one of the things Ariana was talking about in her book is that they sort of pretend that they're doing the critical thinking by doing this. Well, we're talking about the side one of an issue. So yeah. that means we have to try to yeah. find the exact opposite side of that issue and it's sort of faux critical journalism right. and that we're right. not that getting right. true critical journalism. Yeah. yeah, and I think one of the best examples of that is the so-called debate over, over global warming that's yes. been going on for the past decade. I believe she brought that up in the book. Yeah. You know, I mean, the vast consensus among scientists is that is that global warming is happening, and, and it's been that way in the scientific community for many years now. And we've sort of lost a decade of progress on on global warming because of the fact that the press will sit there and they will say, okay, you know, 40,000 scientists signed this petition saying they believe human activity is causing global warming. Now let's talk to the two who didn't, <laughs> you know, and they yeah. they give it equal weight. I mean, it's one yeah. thing to, to report that some people have a difference of opinion. It's another thing to give, you know, a, sort of a fringe theory con- equal weight with the mainstream consensus. And I think that's what she was so critical about in her yeah. book, and that we have yeah. come to, as consumers of news, have come to accept that and say, oh, well, these must be equally valid points. And right. And the flip to that, or, or, or the corollary, I should say, the corollary to that is focusing on the wrong angle of the issue, and that might have something to do with the labeling, but, for example, sticking with the global warming topic, um, Global warming makes people keep looking at the climate. Are the temperatures warmer or are they colder? What's going on in the atmosphere? The problem is we're getting our heads up in the clouds on that issue. We need to put them right smack down on the ground and look at the biggest problem with pollution is the effect on human fertility and overall health. And there's not, we're so busy worrying about the climate, we're not talking enough about what are the health effects. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah that's and, true. and how much and how much cancer has mm-hmm. gone up, and how what is the relationship between that and and the environment, and that gets back into the healthcare because you know if we wouldn't be have to spend so much on healthcare and worrying about that if we spent more time worrying on the environment, yeah, and those possible causes. I mean, there's you know so many more studies coming out now linking just for example breast cancer to environmental. Oh, absolutely. And people who live in Massachusetts don't have a doubt in their mind because Salem, Massachusetts and Marblehead, Massachusetts have one of the highest incidences of breast cancer and, boom, right there next to a power plant. But um, I noticed we're getting getting to the end, so one really fast thing. I think that ties in also with Ariana's overriding message, which goes back to, Joanne, what you thought was um, one of the strongest message points in the book, and that is that Everything we were saying about, you know, mainstream media has gotten lazy. Well, are they really lazy or are they just overworked? This is another thing, not being able to fully explore the issue. And this is where bloggers and mainstream media journalists should not be in competition. This is where we should be complementary. If they have um, only time to do one angle of the global warming issue, 
have your bloggers come in and back up all the other points to it. You know what I'm saying? It should be a complimentary relationship. I agree. That would require them to respect bloggers as people with, you know, intellectual power and uh, respectable sources, though. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think a lot of people in the mainstream media have had a hard time wrapping their heads around, but they're they're getting closer to it, especially with people like Ariana Huffington, who essentially writes, yeah. you know, the Huffington Post is essentially a blog. And, yeah, and she was but she was totally dismissed when she started this blog. I think what now three years ago or not quite three years ago, um, everyone yeah, you know, sort of laughed in the media. You know, who is this woman to think that you know she can do this? Oh, she was married to this politician and she changed parties and and she has become you know a force to be reckoned with. And I know it's going to take time. But hopefully, you know, more of us will be able to develop that and, you know, our political voices will be able to be heard and taken seriously and we won't have as many of those New York Times articles like we saw that's going to run tomorrow. Yeah. I see Glenna is online. I'm glad she was able to be able to join us for a couple of minutes. And she's commenting that um, she was a little upset about some of the research in the book, that she agreed with her points but thought she actually needed a little bit more to back up her positions. What do you think about that? Um, Glenn, are you saying that she didn't cite enough sources? Like she's where did she's she on the it? web chat. She's not online. Um, she's not on the call. Okay. I don't know if she's listening to us, though. But um, I guess what I'm curious about is if, if that's referring to, for example, saying 89.6 million people were uninsured for part of 2006-07, you know, where is that number coming from? That's true. Um, that would have been interesting to know that. I mean, yeah. I did not spend time studying the footnotes, so you know, I'm not sure sort of where. There are quite quite extensive footnotes in the in the back, but I'm not right. really sure that they I'm not sure that they are immediately um, linked to certain pieces of information. So that's a, I think is a good point. So we have about two minutes remaining. Does anybody else have uh, any last thoughts? on the book, why people should well, read it. and One more thing about the book that I thought was fascinating was Ariana's personal confession of why she's now disillusioned with John McCain. Oh. I think that's a very important piece for people to read before the general election. That's the end of the book, right? Yes. And can, mm -hmm. can you just sum up real briefly uh, what that was? Well, that um, in 2004, I think, he was her speaker at her shadow convention that she was holding. And that's when he was the maverick McCain who stood for something and was, um, you know, against torture and he was against the escalation and he was against a lot of the Bush policies. And now he's gone full circle and he's got Karl Rove advising him. Yes, and, you know, it, it, it's, and he's Bush too. So I so, hope everybody goes and reads the book. Uh, we only have about one minute left, so I wanted to thank everybody for calling and participating today. I want to thank Donna and Jaylis and Judy and uh, uh, Julie. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm tired. I'm like trying to concentrate on everybody. Um, I'm sorry. Steph was supposed to join us, but she didn't today. I'm Glenna. I'm glad that you were able to hop in on the podcast today. And uh, hopefully Mama Kratz will be scheduling another podcast in the next couple of weeks and we hope you will all join us then and don't forget to visit Mama Kratz and visit Mama Kratz yeah. at 
W it's http colon double backslash mamacrats.typepad.com. My blog is Pundit Mom. Julie's is Using My Words. J speak up. And J Lips is The State of Discontent. And Donna's is SoCal Mom. And Glenna's is the silent eye. So thank you very much to everybody who joined us and we will see you in a few weeks. Goodbye. Thanks for hosting, Joanne. And we're done. We actually finished one on time. I, it was my goal. I know we could have kept going. I know that we. You could did have great. Going. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I thought you guys did great. You guys really, really, really did great. Thanks for carrying so much of the show. Well, no, it, uh, gosh, you know, you know, just get Judy and Jaylith in there, Julie and Jaylith in there, and you've got all your facts. I know. And, I know. And, and you were just, you know, really good. Okay, it's been 25 minutes. We really have to start talking about the book now. I mean, you were just putting it back on course. Okay, really I good. Guys, I hope you guys didn't mind. No. Okay, Donna, are you the only one still there? I don't know. Is it just you and me? Julie? Jayla? I guess so. I guess, I guess so. so. Okay. Well, go enjoy the rest of your day at the beach. Well, I have to I have to go get packed for the beach now. So oh, dear. Tomorrow. Yeah. So I can't wait to see you again. <laughs> it will be you. good. Will we are going to have to do some conference calls before Denver, I think. I think so, yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk to you later. Okay, Joanne. Okay. Have a Bye, safe Donna. and happy trip. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.